welcome to Health to Be Determined, a podcast about the social determinants of health. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, board president of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Today, Dr. Kaplan speaks with Dr. Karen DeSalvo, former acting assistant secretary for health at HHS. Dr. DeSalvo is a co-convener for the National Alliance for the Social Determinants of Health. Through this podcast, we'll explore the concept of public health 3.0, and resources available to communities that are tackling some of the underlying causes of health disparities in the United States. Dr. Karen, let me ask you, I know from your previous experience you worked as the Commissioner for Public Health for the City of New Orleans, and I wondered if you could share with the audience how your experiences in New Orleans shaped your understanding of the social determinants of health and of their importance in public health work. Thanks, Gabe. I'm so excited to start there because the experiences that I had, not only as health commissioner, but leading up to it really still continue to be impactful and and drive a lot of my thinking uh, in the work that I do. You know, one of the traumatic events that happened to New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina. So in 2005, I was here working in uh, academics, in academic medicine, and though I was and academic public health as well, I, I really had, had to, I think, more of a non-practice but research thinking about the drivers of health for my community. And as I think was was good work around improving access and quality to care, it just became also evident to me when we were all literally thrown on the streets and trying to think about not only how to meet immediate need, but rebuild a health system that would better serve the population. It was just so clearly obvious that we had to tend to more than medical care. People needed housing and an educational system and transportation and public safety and clean air and soil and all of it was knocked down and we had to rebuild it up uh, from the ground after Hurricane Katrina. And though first few years I was really focused on building a great healthcare system, which we did and we're very proud of, it only took a, a very short period of time for my public health genes <laughs> to have an epigenetic phenomenon. I usually say like I just realized that healthcare was only going to get us so far and just we had to really have this uh, work across sectors that would make sure that the public's health had every opportunity and that meant not just medical care but really making sure that we were building strength in all those other social determinants and, and drivers of health and so it was this ramp up. And and when I became health commissioner, it was just a a terrific opportunity for putting public health front and center of making sure that all those sectors were working together and that we were also doing that on behalf of the public, lifting up their voice and their priorities and kind of driving forward this this health agenda for a community that, that frankly, really deserved it and really needed it in, in that time of crisis. So tell us about the work you did at HHS creating this idea of public health 3.0. Well, it grew out of all those experiences. You know, when I, I make it sound like uh, public health, I just sort of stepped into the role of health commissioner and everything went smoothly. The reality was, like many local health departments in the U.S., our health department in New Orleans had been in decline, not just from Katrina, but from just years of underfunding related to the Great Recession because of changes and dynamism around the Affordable Care Act, where some of what local public health did was clinical practice, and that was a source of revenue. That would change um, when coverage expansion started and, and public health staffing got smaller, the focus of it 
shifted out of the kind of clinical needs of the underserved into really more of these broader public health opportunities and challenges. And I think the other big thing that was happening to local public health was the greater demands around the social determinants as a big driver of morbidity and mortality of, of suffering and death in communities. And you know, we, we as a country have conquered by and large, um, communicable disease infections. We've conquered a lot of the, the suffering from chronic disease. I'm not saying that we've solved it all, but we've found better systemness to doing it. But now these challenges around the bigger social determinants are a lot of the driver for health problems in a community. And so our local health department in New Orleans was very much like uh, others across the country. More demand for our, our work, but less resources to do that work to meet the, the, the challenges of the public's health. And as health commissioner, what I was able to do with my team on the ground was transform our local health department into one that was modern and able to meet the 21st century challenges around health. And that involved a, a set of actions that we took in a strategic way. And when I got to HHS and began to learn even more about what was happening in local public health around the country, two things became really clear to me. One, New Orleans was not alone. There was a lot of transformation and innovation happening into this, what I call the public health 3.0 model, the 21st century model. But it was also sort of an um, unclear, unsung effort that, that needed to be lifted up and there needed to be clarity about what could sustain, not just the, that could sustain that modernization beyond, you know, a charismatic leader or a catastrophe that sort of drives and marshals a community. How could we see that every American has that kind of public health protection of a 21st century health department. And so I used that time at HHS to learn about and lift up that movement that was already happening on the front lines and to put out a set of recommendations about how to sustain it. Great. Thank you. So what are some of the prime examples you can give of public health engaging on this topic and working with various sectors to advance progress in this area? Maybe first I'll just sort of want to say a word about what are the key components to this public health 3.0 model because it'll give you some sense of some models. That, that I'll give you examples in some of those areas. What we found uh, very recurrently was that there were five key areas that mattered when uh, local communities were working to modernize public health. And by the way, most of this is focused on local public health, like cities and counties, uh, though uh, very applicable to states. And we, we learn from states, and also I've seen a lot of states taking up this kind of framework. And the five areas are thematic across the country. One is about uh, strong leadership and workforce, especially leadership that takes this model of of a chief health strategist working outside of the bounds of a health department. The second is uh, they were all developing strategic partnerships that were often unexpected partnerships. So not just, you know, maybe healthcare, but they were working with technology providers or the business sector on the front lines to find ways that they were partners with the aligned interests and missions. The third area was they found a way to have sustainable and flexible funding. Sometimes that was through pooling resources. Sometimes it was by finding a local philanthropy. Sometimes it was through local increases in in tax dollars to support the work that was happening. The fourth was making use of timely uh, data that was not stale, you know, because it was two years old, but something that was relevant and and near term that could really create a more of a quality improvement kind of environment. And the final one was about infrastructure. And some of that relates to accreditation. So moving through the public health accreditation process, which is just a way to create a strong infrastructure of a health department. There are also a lot of communities that were 
creating these umbrella structures where they were working across sectors to create new organizations that could share money and governance and sort of set, set aligned uh, missions and visions. And this is very much what we did in New Orleans in, in many ways, but the thematically, I saw some really interesting strengths in other places. I mean, for example, in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, which is the county around Pittsburgh, they have formed a, a multi-sectoral collaborative that has its own infrastructure for governance and for data sharing and for resource sharing that has been sustained now for years and allows them as a community to work together to solve challenges that arise and, and do that in a sustained fashion. They're not alone. You find those kinds of models in places like San Antonio or even smaller communities like Erie, Pennsylvania. And then there's very sophisticated models like what New York City's done around use, leveraging data to do some hot spotting and really go, go to ground to identify the health needs of, of communities. So one real drive home point I want to make, Gabe, is that what I have had the chance not only to see when I was at HHS in the development of the report, we did these listening sessions all across the country, but also what I've seen since is that in every time zone, every temperate zone, communities large and small, this kind of innovation is happening and thematically it takes these five big areas to sustain and that's the work we have to do as a country going forward is to make sure that they have an opportunity, those local communities to have this work not just be one-off but really be a part of the 21st century public health infrastructure. Well, that's great. Thank you. So a key concept in, in public health is this concept of primary, uh, secondary, and tertiary prevention and at a recent conference for NACDD members, we talked about the social determinants of health as sort of the primary prevention strategies before primary prevention. So they're sort of the primary, primary prevention strategies. Mm-hmm, yeah. If smoking, obesity, you know, physical activity, nutrition are primary prevention activities, what are the activities before that that we could potentially engage in? I think for programs that are working in the chronic disease prevention and management space, however, it is hard to persuade our funders of the connections across these areas. And I know just from recent experience with funding Congress uh, struggles to sort of navigate the relationship with CDC and direct CDC somewhat in how money should be distributed across primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. And there's a particular focus in some of the chronic disease areas like cardiovascular disease and diabetes uh, to focus on some secondary and tertiary prevention strategies. How can public health make the case for work in the social determinants area as being connected to chronic disease prevention and management being sort of an evidence-based part, if you will, of primary prevention and an appropriate use of resources from the federal government in chronic disease. This is part of the, this is what's exciting to me about this transformation of public health into a modern version, a 21st century version, this 3.0 model, because what it is evolving is local public health that has the capacity and capability to address the policy and and environmental and systems level drivers of health challenge. And that's like a mouthful of wonky language. But what it means is, is that, you know, I think public health was in a space for a while out of necessity of, for example, doing smoking cessation program work where it was helping set up quit lines and embed evidence-based programs in partnership or by itself in the clinical environment. So someone, you know, comes in a clinic and they've got asthma or emphysema or heart disease and we want them to quit smoking or we want want to prevent them from getting those 
about those complications of smoking. Where this 3.0 model and this transformation of public health allows us as a field to be a better partner to the healthcare system and to the community in a place like smoking is it, it gives public health the bandwidth to take on policies like Tobacco 21 or smoke-free communities or smoke-free campuses for colleges. And this is, a, this is you know, I think the purview of how there's good evidence to show that one of the most important things we can do is prevent people from starting smoking in the first place and do that at a systems or a policy or an environmental level. And public health in many communities across the nation has been able to bring the stakeholders to the table. Sometimes it, maybe it's the university environment, maybe it's the entire city, maybe parks and playgrounds, you know, maybe it's the business environment. And systematically, you're saying in the case of smoking prevention, a lot of really good, broad, uh, foundational work that is evidence-based and isn't about uh, supporting a single individual, important as that is, but it really creates a healthier context that allows that person to make uh, healthy choices. Smoking is but one example. You can look at examples in food, in air quality, and I get, as you might be able to tell, really excited about this because I think that healthcare, you know, I'm a doctor and I really appreciate and respect what we can do in medicine, but I'm also a public health professional and I respect and appreciate what we can do in public health. And I think together, the synergy of supporting an individual's health, but making sure that they're in a healthy context and have the opportunity to make the healthy choice, the easy choice. This is where we really start to make some significant gains in the public's health. But I mentioned some other players in there, Gabe, and I, I want to call them out again. It's not just about medicine and public health. The business sector, the educational sector, faith-based, all the other parts of our community coming together, that's how we create the conditions in which everyone can be healthy, which is truly the definition of public health. That's great. So it's almost as if public health programs should have a checklist of community partners and think about how often am I checking in with these folks? How aware am I of the kinds of things that they're doing, the kinds of things they can offer to me and to my programs and sort of making a ritual or habit, if you will, of checking in with them to keep those kinds of conversations alive and surface opportunities for sectors to come together, convene and partner uh, to advance issues and, and progress in this area. You're, you're so Right. I want to point to maybe one personal example and then kind of, and then a, a reference for the listeners if they want to learn more about how to do that. This is one of the things for, for me as the health commissioner in New Orleans that I learned was just what you're saying. I had to have, I had to set a table. Either I had to convene it or I had to find the right parties to convene it and be at, but I had to be at the table and we had to meet regularly and share information and share data so that we had a shared fact base and then could take action upon it. And I think sometimes communities think, well, we have have the one single table. One of the, the lessons I learned was you do need to, to sometimes when you're starting these relationships, find a win that you think you can all get together. And so, for example, in New Orleans, we had folks who were very interested in mental health issues and, and a, a priority for my community. And so we created a special behavioral health table, which continues to this day. I started it back in 2010 and I've been gone for years and, it, and it's still moving forward because there's enough win and interest in sharing information. Similarly, we did this around something called Fit No which was about physical and nutritional um, fitness, but also expanded beyond that. So you sometimes need multiple tables um, because even even if it's 
I found some of the same actors at the same table. You want the winds to feel palpable and, and proximate, and it forces the regular check-in. That takes resources for a health commissioner, for my staff. It's not something you can do on the skinny, and this is one of the reasons, one of the five areas of public health 3.0 transformation is about having flexible, sustainable funding. And we've recently put out, last fall, we put out a report on the funding it would take to support that kind of public health infrastructure and protection for everybody in the country. And the amazing part of the number that the cost of that is $32 a person a year, which is you know, basically less than a cup of fancy coffee, coffee a month for everybody in the country to have that kind of multi-sectoral collaborative uh, work resourced and supported in the community. To the second point you made about sort of how do you know who to invite and where do you go, I was going to say one resource, but I'm going to tell you two. Um, one is the Practical Playbook, which the DeBeaumont Foundation publishes, and there's a series of chapters about sort of the how to do this on the front lines, and there's a, a richness of resources in there for anyone interested in being involved in this work, whether you're in public health practice or the business sector or others, including evidence-based practices that, that are, are known to return investment. And another group I've had the chance to spin off from Public Health 3.0 work, and that's something called phrases. It's also supported by the De Beaumont Foundation. And the work we're doing is to create messaging and communication toolkits, particularly for public health, uh, but also for others who might engage. Because just sitting at the table isn't enough. You have to know how to have a conversation. And that sounds so simple, but it turns out to be difficult when you speak different languages and you have different priorities because housing is seeing the world in a certain way or the business sector or payers or public health. So those would be two kind of concrete resources for folks who want to get involved in the work that I would point them to. But that work takes resources, and I, I, I just want to make sure people also realize that, um, that this is transforming public health is going to require some sustained investment. So that's a, a, an actual publication from the De Beaumont Foundation. One is the Practical Playbook, and yes. the other is called Phrases. The Phrases is actually is a set of tools. It's uh, Phrases, uh, as in all caps, uh, public health reaching across sectors. And people should be on the lookout because in July of this year, we're going to release a whole new suite of tools for use. But um, yeah, phrases is not is a, is an ongoing effort to to help create communication tools for, for local public health folks and others that want to engage in multi-sectoral collaboration. The Practical Playbook, I think this is the second or third iteration of it, and it has, there is a website where the, the chapters are made available and it pushes people to concrete evidence-based resources and examples of what works in the field. Oh, that's great. That's going to be so it's useful. Practicalplaybook.org is the website. Practicalplaybook.org. And the other is phrases.org. Oh, great. So that should be easy for our listeners to navigate to, and that really does provide a very valuable resource con- that connects to my president's challenge, which really is about how do we implement, how do we how do we actually mm-hmm. go from our understanding to taking action. One of the things that I was going to ask you about is in the article, Public Health 3.0, you talk about the role of local health as conveners. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the role of state public health in this space? And, and would the playbook and phrases and would those resources help people find their way, or are there other things that, from a state perspective, work at the state level they should keep in mind. I want to make sure that the listeners know is that we have state by state, very different structures of public health across the country. Some states are, have a more centralized state level dominance of driving public health in their community and then in the uh, in other states it's more local. So Massachusetts would be a great example of a community where they have a lot of local public health and um, uh, Louisiana would be an example where there's pretty strong central public health. What all that means is, is that in the U.S., um, based upon where you live, uh, there's going to be a different 
a stronger leader for the kind of public health work that needs to get done. And so to answer your specific question, in my mind, we have to be thinking about local public health and transition to 3.0 and the kinds of tools I mentioned as being useful for whatever is the the structure in the context of local public health. I have seen states that have made really good use of the framework, uh, like Virginia or South Carolina, as examples of this 3.0 framework. And some of the uh, people will read about, for example, in the Practical Playbook, which are these models of how to partner Medicaid and the state public health are really designed for state-based strategies. So the short answer is yes, (laughs) these are good tools for the state. States are moving to a 3.0 model. They're they're recognizing that the 21st century health challenges that populations face are bigger than any one sector and require multi-sectoral collaboration and require modernization of approaches to leveraging data and really being able to take more timely action uh, for the health of communities. It's, a, it's a, frankly a really exciting time in public health and for me in many ways it's a call to action that the, the country needs us and we're stepping up in many ways. Now I think it's the country's turn again to come back to public health and say we're ready to help uh, continuing to support your, your modernization as you strive to to meet the challenges of the 21st century. That's great. I'm looking at the Practical Playbook website, and mm-hmm. it, it's just such a wonderful, valuable place of resource. And as you said, there are multiple iterations of the playbook. And you can see on the first page an example of partnerships that aligned in the Bronx to cut asthma triggers in housing mm-hmm. and um, a partnership in Kansas between Sedgwick County Public Health and the Academy Family Physicians to Save Tobacco-Free Wichita. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any particular chronic disease interventions that our listeners should be aware of or opportunities that they should sort of think about potentially importing into their state, uh, perhaps something where there's a nutrition and diabetes mm-hmm. program partnership? Uh, can you think of any that come to mind that really represent partnership opportunities that our folks have to advance work in this area? I want to pick two to talk about, but since you mentioned diabetes, I will just highlight that I think, you know, programs like the Diabetes Prevention Program are a a nice example of how we're trying to meet people where they are in community and use a resource, you know, like a YMCA or some other kind of a, a model that feels more comfortable and part of your life flow for your chronic disease treatment. But as you say, there, there has, it has to also be coupled with opportunities around uh, access to healthy food. And there is a burgeoning amount of work happening think through leveraging data to better map access to healthy food in communities and see that we're making sure that people are able to, for example, especially if they're low income, use SNAP or, or, or what we used to call food stamps to access farmers markets. There's also interesting models about bringing healthy food around to community and or embedding them healthy food uh, at places like federally qualified health centers through, through partnerships that's been done in uh, small communities like Jonesboro, Arkansas. But I want to point out two, two particular things that I very much would love to see replicated and I'll tell why. But one of them isn't, it does have import for chronic disease because it's informational. And this is this project called Macroscope, which New York City, the New York City Health Department has been engaged in. And it's a way that they're using electronic health record data from the City Health Department clinics as a proxy for the rates of chronic disease, uh, particularly obesity, diabetes, and hypertension in the New York City broad population. And they've, they've basically shown that they don't have to do 
individual random sampling surveys in the community that take a long time and then the data is kind of stale by the time you get it. But rather they can dip in and, and take anonymous data from a non-random sample, an electronic health record, and know enough about where the community is with respect to those chronic diseases and use that to, to do some hot spotting, some mapping to go to ground and really put intervention programs where they need to in a timely fashion. I would love to see other communities take that strategy. So so rather than waiting for a, a field survey to be finished and the data is already two or three years old by the time public health has it, but to start to show that we can we can be more uh, timely in understanding the challenges and, 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 and map them in a community so we know where to target the next healthy food option or the next DPP program uh, that, that really meets the needs of population. So that's a, that's a data, but it's an infrastructure and I think a, a more, a smarter, cheaper, faster way to provide public health interventions that can be a partnership between a variety of, of actors but, and, and address chronic disease before it gets too far out of control. The second I wanted to mention is something called Louisville Air, which is one that is paper published. Macroscope, by the way, has uh, been pub has published, so there's there's literature out there. People could see it. It's replicated, and I know New York's been really open about wanting to share with people how they're doing their data work. But the Louisville one is about asthma, and the way that they took on this work is to say, we want to improve asthma outcomes but we don't want to just do it by treating people in the clinical environment. So they, they put these little technology indicators on the inhalers so they could tell when and where people were um, using their inhalers more often, kids and adults, and then used that data. They mapped the data from the little geocoded inhalers to figure out where they had air quality challenges in the community. And then based upon what they found from that mapping, not only did they address the individual needs around the chronic disease of asthma and change care plans where necessary, but they also did things like plant trees or change truck routes to reduce the, the environmental exposures to poor air quality. So this is, a, to me, a really interesting example of, you know, technology, medicine, and public health working together to improve a chronic disease in a community. I would love to see that kind of work replicated as well. That sounds great. Well, that's been really uh, very helpful and very enlightening. You said macroscope uh, is Macroscope, M-A-C-R-O, macroscope. Yeah. They've released uh, an organized and written up some of the the results from this kind of work that folks should look for. They have. One of the reasons I really like it is because if you just Google on Macroscope New York City, it's easy to find. One of the reasons I, I, I like their work is because they've done, they have been very meticulous in making sure that they can validate their findings and uh, pretty transparent in their methods. So that's that's one of the reasons I point there. Massachusetts has done some similar work, and there are other states that are starting to take it up. But I, I, I guess you know, for the listeners, what I, what I'm trying to get to is there's a lot of good stuff out there now. Instead of trying to invent everything brand new for ourselves, let's build upon the evidence that exists. So practical playbook gives a lot of examples for things that we know are population-level evidence-based strategies that, that can impact chronic disease. Let's test those in the field and, and report out on our findings and what works and doesn't and share that information broadly. We don't need to keep reinventing an approach, but we do need to get smarter about data. One of the rate-limiting steps in transformation to 3.0, addressing social determinants working in a multi-sectoral fashion, is, is not having uh, good data about the status of the population's health, not only 
only at baseline but at after intervention. And public health just needs to be able to have a more rapid cycle of improvement for lots of reasons, which is a whole other podcast. But right. um, it, it, the data part, for some people, they might say, ugh, data, we have data. You don't have the data. And I'm, I'm just, I feel so strongly about that. Public health has got, this is the foundational important work that we can do, but we need to be a lot more timely and actionable in the information that we have because that's how we can be a really strong partner, not just to health care, but to the rest of the community is to really make sure we've got a current and strong set of facts from which we can all act to improve the public's health and know when we made progress. That's a great note to end on is that surveillance uh, very often gets neglected when we start mm-hmm. talking about moving upstream just because we don't tend to track a lot of those upstream issues as well in our surveillance systems and because there's such a dire need for action and people are urgent, feel a sense of urgency about acting, that I think very often they neglect the investments that we need to make in surveillance uh, to sort of properly orient ourselves before we get started to make sure that we are, as you said, directing the resources to the places of the most dire need, uh, to the mm-hmm. places where there's greatest opportunity. Mm-hmm. And with Macroscope, for instance, there are, is so much opportunity to really connect medical information, clinical information to local information that that relates to the environment and where people live and uh, what are the you know environmental challenges that and and my mean environment and the sort of broadly both the built mm-hmm. environment and the natural environment um, how that's impacting their health exactly exactly and then everybody can step in and do the part that they do best but doing that collaboratively is really uh, what that future looks like and so yeah I mean, I'm excited about uh, honestly how how much the various sectors are recognizing that they have strengths but those strengths begin and end somewhere. And so doing this work going forward in a collaborative fashion is kind of the, the new fad, if you will. And, and it's it, and I hope it's not a fad. I hope it's just the way we start doing business again as a country and, and not uh, having everybody in their little silo. It, it really, uh, the stakes are high. We have a lot of work to do for this country's health and, and the best way to do this is doing it together. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think the growing gaps in income inequality and social service deprivation to really broad sectors of our populations and regions and geographic locations is probably one of the biggest challenges public health has in a sense as we improve in our sophistication clinically and with respect to tertiary and secondary preventions in public health. It concerns me that some of those primary, primary prevention needs are are getting worse and they really require some desperate attention by this country and I, I hope we can, we can do that. And in doing that, I hope people remember your call to not reinvent the wheel, that there is you're not alone out there and as you and your partners at a local level and as a state at a state level begin to think about these challenges uh, and opportunities you are not the first ones to do this and you should stand on the shoulders of the giants who've come before and there are resources out there such as the practical playbook phrases the places you've pointed us to that the Beaumont Foundation is doing some really important work and there are places folks can go to learn about how to do this work at a practical level and particularly in the chronic disease space. So thank you so much for your time, Karen. This has been a fascinating conversation and I I just wish we could keep talking. Well, thank you so much for your interest and um, good luck with everything during your presidential year. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Health to be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.